Dr. Jason Woods here, and this is the Little Big Med Podcast, where we're talking little patients, but big medicine. Today, we're talking teeny weeny problems, aka pediatric urology. Before we get into the interview, just a couple of housekeeping things. First, while I always appreciate all of the feedback I get from from you guys on content and audio quality, I just want to let you know up front that I'm aware that there are some audio glitches in the, the feed for today. I had a lot of internet connectivity issues the day that we recorded this, and so you'll hear some of that. Second, I apologize for the delay in getting some of these episodes out. We have a new daughter at home who has really started to hamper my ability to get things done. Uh, so hopefully, uh, now that she's a little bit older, we will be resuming the normal pace. And with that, we'll let Tanya introduce herself and get right into the interview. So I am Dr. Tanya Davis. I am a pediatric urologist, uh, both at Children's National Medical Center in Washington, D.C., where I am an attending. Uh, I'm also the pediatric urologist for the Mid-Atlantic Permanente Medical Group, also in Washington, D.C., as well as the surrounding regions. Tanya is a good friend of mine, and I asked her to come around and today and talk with us about all the things that she does that give us a little bit of extra anxiety in the emergency room, especially when they're related to kids, how we can not miss the diagnoses and then what sorts of things we should be calling her about and what sorts of things we can handle on our own. So, Tanya, I'm wondering if we can just right up front talk about stuff that causes pain in the scrotum and the testicles. And torsion of the testicle is the thing that I think comes up on everybody's list when we think of you and and things that have to be dealt with quickly. Of course. So testicular torsion is absolutely one of our top emergencies in both pediatric and adult urology, although, as you probably already know, it's something that you're seeing in sort of a bimodal distribution. So you're seeing neonates, which is sort of a little bit of a different animal, but the ones that you're probably most commonly dealing with would be the the peripubertal children that are having testis torsion. I can't say that I have ever been the one that diagnosed the the neonate with testicular torsion. I've had those patients, but most of ours are the adolescent boys somewhere around puberty. You know, if you look at any of our textbooks and probably some of yours, this is technically a clinical diagnosis. So you're making that based off of sort of the constellation of how the patient presents. So, and some of this depends on how long it is from onset of the condition to time of presentation. But, you know, certainly you may have scrotal redness, swelling, skin changes, uh, in particular nausea and vomiting. And I want to put point that one out because that can really help pinpoint the specific diagnosis. You know, you're going to have a sudden onset of pain. Very rarely would you have a history of trauma, although sometimes something has happened around that they kind of try to make fit the story of why this suddenly happened. I think things that are a little bit less helpful, but I sometimes hear about would be the presence or absence of the cremasteric reflex or the lie of the testis. Uh, But really long and short of it, I think you have to have a low suspicion, particularly in the pubertal, or I should say, excuse me, a high suspicion in the peripubertal boy that comes in. And even sometimes it's a vague complaint like abdominal pain or groin pain, especially if you have a child with developmental delay. So I would always encourage including the genital urinary exam as a quick part of your assessment of these patients as you're initially evaluating them and triaging them. So you dropped something in there that that I've heard said before, but I kind of want to dig into a little bit more in that that it's a, a clinical diagnosis. Are you ever taking a kid to the OR without an ultrasound for testicular torsion? 
So yes and no. Uh, certainly yes, if it's a very clear-cut picture and this time is of the essence, then sometimes yes, you can go to the OR without an ultrasound. However, what happens in most situations is the ultrasound has already been obtained. I will say as sort of a corollary to that, there are a lot of times where the ultrasound may not definitively make the diagnosis. So sometimes you can see situations where perhaps there's decreased flow or, you know, hyperemia increased flow to the testis with a hydrocele around it and then the story really fits or something like that. So I would say that there are certainly instances where it's not a home run with the ultrasound, meaning no flow to that testicle that we would still consider going to the operating room, assuming some other things have been ruled out leading up to that. Sure. Sure. And, and I think some, sometimes why I push back against that is is because we often end up needing to rule out those other things. And uh, the pediatric general surgeons often tell us that appendicitis is a clinical diagnosis, although never seen any of them take a kid to the OR without imaging. So um, it just makes me laugh a little bit. Right. And I would say that's right. And I would say that is definitely the rarity. But of course, you know, you're sitting for your oral boards or whatever the situation is. And that's sort of the answer. You don't have to have it. But in reality, you know, so many ERs now have the ultrasound right there. And so very quickly, you know, the child's getting to ultrasound even maybe before you've kind of completed the entire clinical evaluation because you have a high suspicion for this. This is a little tongue in cheek, but do you think that's still the the answer on the oral boards because it's all old men that run it uh, and existed before the ultrasound existed? I would say on our (laughs) boards, this is, it's still the answer. If you, you know, I think that, not that I got asked that question and I did pass my board, so that's a positive. (laughs) Um, But this is still, if you're asked the question, I I mean, the bottom line is if you, if the ultrasound is equivocal or, but the story is really good, you're never going to be faulted for taking the child to the OR, I guess I would say. Awesome. Um, Because again, the consequences are so high. You know, the loss of testis is a big deal. And certainly I think both in our field as well as yours, it's one of the top reasons, you know, not that we care about medical legal things in theory, but this is one of the top reasons that, you know, your management can be questioned. Right. No, I mean, I mean, I I certainly do. There's, there's all sorts of consequences for, for that. And the risk is um, if you, if you miss it, like that's a, that is a lifelong thing you've committed that kid to. So sorry, you were saying a lifelong consequence. One thing I do often tell families is that to, as long as the other testis is normal, you should have totally normal fertility, hormonal production, puberty, all these things that they worry about. But yes, of course, it's better to have, as I say, an heir and a spare. <laughs> That's fantastic. So you you actually mentioned in there uh, maybe being less helpful the lie of the testicle or the absence of the cremasteric reflex. Can you jump into that a little bit? Yeah, so certainly a lot of times when you know, I'm receiving a call. They may say that the testicle has like a more horizontal lie uh, or, you know, is higher up in the scrotum. And certainly, I guess it it's just something that it doesn't make or break my diagnosis. I suppose it is possible, you know, if the cord is twisted, it can pull testicle into funny positions or bring it higher up in the scrotum. But this can certainly occur just because the child is in pain and tense and being examined, that cremasteric muscle could pull the testicle higher up. And so in and of itself, it it doesn't mean very much to me. That actually uh, makes me a little bit happy only because when when residents come in and tell me that, but they've not actually like stood the child up, it always makes me question what, how you can actually tell whether that lie was abnormal, if it's uh, all bunched up uh, on a blanket or sort of in and around their underwear in the awkward position. A lot of ER doctors try to examine testicles because they feel weird about it. So th- then the definitive therapy for it is is a surgical procedure. How do you 
feel about the recommendations, at least in some of the older textbooks, about uh, trying to manually detorse the testicle? So I think I think that that's fine to do that. I think what can sometimes be tricky is I don't know that a manual detorsion should prevent going to the operating room. I think it's something that you can do as an adjunct to that. And the reason I say this is there's been some cases where the patient has been, quote unquote, manually decoursed with some return of flow with a subsequent ultrasound sort of like before and after. Um, and sometimes we still take this patient because they're at risk for having this issue occur again, Be just because of the nature of why testis torsion occurs. It's basically an abnormal um, connection between the tunica vaginalis and sort of how that secures the testis within the scrotum. And so another word you may have heard is a bell clapper deformity. And so if it's happened once, it's possibly for this happening again, and maybe even on the other side. Um, so we call this the bell clapper deformity. And so long and short, I think it's great if you can restore some blood flow in the interim because really the consequence of this is because of a lack of blood flow or a decrease in blood flow. But in many cases, I've had patients that have been manually detoured still go back to the OR and there's still some element of, of torsion of the cord. Now, were they more torse before? Don't know. Um, but I think that it shouldn't, in most cases, prevent you from still going back to the OR. But I think it's fine to do. So what about some other things that are on the, the differential list for acute testicular or acute scrotal pain in, in kids? So certainly, let's see, torsion of the appendix testis. So you may have heard over time the, the blue dot sign, so to speak. Um, so this is basically a remnant of the malarian system taking you way back to embryology. Um, the fem Basically what arises, the female genital urinary structures, or I should say genital structures, um, internally. And so it's basically just like a little appendage that's hanging off uh, the testis, or sometimes there's also ones on the epididymis. And so if one of these is happens to twist on its stalk, um, you can basically end up with a very similar picture in terms of acute onset pain. Typically, you'll ultrasound this, though, um, and you'll you'll see that there's an area kind of superior to the testis that looks inflamed, heterogeneous, but the actual architecture of the testis is completely normal. Um, and the blue dot sign is really just related to that actual appendix testis leading to some skin changes on the scrotum. Um, this is something that's managed conservatively. Scrotal support, NSAIDs, does not require surgical intervention. Other things too, obviously, you know, and this is history-based a little bit, is there's trauma to the testis, some kind of like a bike injury, contact sports, blunt force. Uh, you know, you can have testis rupture or hematocele blood in the space around the testis, typically from a testis rupture. So that's something to consider. Typically, that is an operative uh, intervention if there's, you know, truly rupture of the tunica albigenia of the testis. Of course, if you have a painless mass, you have to go down the tumor pathway, um, testicular cancer. Uh, let's see. Ep so epididymorchitis. So on, on, the, uh, on the testicular rupture, I think I have a hard time not having done a lot of testicular surgeries myself, imagining sort of what that, that looks like and what the problem is if it's not repaired. So you cut out a little bit. So just to clarify, uh, the question was, what does it look like and what happens if it's not repaired? Correct. Uh, so what it would look like is it could be very similar um, to testis torsion. So you could have 
you know, echimosis, which echimosis would probably be a little more trauma-related than true torsion-related unless it's a very delayed torsion, um, edema, erythema, uh, pain. Again, the history is going to be really critical in making that diagnosis that there truly was a blunt force or a bike injury to the testis. The reason that we surgically treat this is that recovery, while probably would eventually happen over time, it prolongs that process. The child's in pain for quite a long time, um, and certainly you know, this, it just speeds up the process of them getting better, I would say. Also, some people talk about a risk for infection if you don't treat that hematocele and close the rupture. Although, to be perfectly frank, it's not something I've ever seen in practice. Okay. Uh, sorry, I interrupted you. You were going to go talk about epididymal orchitis. Oh, yep. That's another, that's another one. Um, certainly, the history is also key here because a lot of times these kids will have dysuria, urinary frequency, urgency. If they are younger, maybe new onset accidents, day or nighttime. Typically, the onset is a little more insidious, not so abrupt. Something to keep in mind, particularly with younger kids, is this could signal some sort of abnormality of the genital urinary tract in general. So that's kind of something that the urologist would sort out on the back end uh, because, again, it's pretty unusual, particularly in younger children to end up getting an epididymorachitis without some sort of predisposing abnormality, although not impossible. Uh, another key point is it's often unrelated to sexual activity in the younger kids that we're dealing with. And typically you would just get your urine studies, then start empiric antibiotics, have follow-up with urology, and you know obviously adjust according to culture results. And you, you, just to clarify, you said in the younger kids, it's usually not related to, to sexual activity, but you are still prophylactically placing on antibiotics at any age for orchitis. If you have high suspicion and, okay. you know, and based on the, the history, the UA, because you'll have your UA and your, your micro. So if you're seeing positive leukocyte esterase, positive nitrites, uh, the microscopy shows you know, high numbers of white blood cells for high powered fields the child's febrile, you know, this is all sort of leaning you down that path. So right. then based on whatever, you know, typically the anti antibiogram, I think that's the right word, looks like in your area, you're selecting an antibiotic and then just waiting for the culture to resolve. But certainly these kids would then need to follow up with urology to really look into why did this occur. Okay. Are we still, I feel like somewhere in the recesses of my brain, at least in the younger kids, there was still a significant viral component. Uh, is that true or did I make that up? So you can. A lot of times kids that have sort of like a viral cystitis, um, you're, you may not see much of anything truly, um, or the culture definitely may not grow something because this is a lot tougher to kind of get out in the culture medium. When I classically see this, they do have some hematuria, a lot of dysuria, but a relatively unimpressive urine panel. And so a lot of times these kids end up getting ultrasounded and you can even kind of see in many cases a very thickened, angry bladder wall. A lot of times in this, we just kind of say this is a, a good or a classic picture, I would say, for a viral cystitis. So, and sorry, one last thing just to back up to that differential diagnosis. I just wanted to put out there hydrocele, which is this fluid around the testicle, a hernia, and a varicocele, which is the bag of worms. These are all, you know, unless it's an incarcerated hernia, less urgent things, but just kind of to put those out there as well. Now, I realized after the fact that we jumped a little bit between topics there, and I just wanted to clarify 
when we're bringing up bacterial versus viral causes, if it's straight epididymitis or if there is a significant epididymitis component to it, those are relatively more likely to be bacterial. And so those are the patients where Dr. Davis was talking about making sure that you culture, potentially placing on prophylactic antibiotics and for sure needing urology follow-up because it's a little bit unclear why, uh, if it's not related to sexual activity in a younger kid, those would be happening. If it's primarily an orchitis or a cystitis, those are relatively more commonly caused by viral issues rather than bacterial. So those were the ones where she was talking about uh, blood in the urine, but otherwise a relatively unimpressive urinalysis. Can we just go ahead and talk about trauma to the perineum, to the penis, what uh, and to the scrotum? What needs to be repaired, what doesn't, and what should we do versus what needs to be seen by you? If you have a blunt or a sharp trauma, let's say, to the, let's start with the scrotum. I mean, I think you're certainly going to end up evaluating with ultrasound, and if it's anything that's more than a superficial laceration, you should be calling pediatric urology for that. And then they can determine, because a lot of times, things that we might repair in the, in the ER in older kids, you know, we're not really able to do that. And there might be more exploration that's needed, too, just to ensure that, you know, everything's fine with the cord structures and this sort of thing. In terms of the penis, you you know, I kind of feel very similarly, like unless it's anything other than a very superficial laceration with an obvious cause, you should definitely be reaching out to urology. And I would say even so, I don't think there's any harm in reaching out and having them say, that's fine, go ahead and repair that. I think something to keep in mind too, particularly with penile injuries, you know, having a low suspicion, or I keep saying low, but a high suspicion, you know, just to make sure that there's not any sort of untoward activities going on, sexual abuse, this kind of stuff, something to keep in mind. That's a good thing to hear you say is that anything more than a superficial laceration, we need to be calling a pediatric urologist only because sometimes, you know, we do a lot of laceration repair elsewhere. And if this was a cut that occurred somewhere else on the body, it's something I would be able to sew immediately. So it sometimes makes me feel like maybe we're being a little bit too wimpy or we're calling too often for some of these, but, um, but thank you for reinforcing that. I think just to call and touch base and say, here's the story. And then, you know, certainly if the person that you're calling feels that, you know, it's not a big deal and you can go ahead and sew it back together, I think that's appropriate too. But I think, in general, I try to sort of be available and have a low threshold to, you know, help triage the stuff. This is why you're my favorite pediatric urologist. <laughs> um, and something else to keep in mind, you know, if there's perineal trauma, like, you know, the bike straddle injuries, um, make sure to look at the perineum, look for any bruising, because of course, then you're starting to worry urethral injury, which would lead you to call the urologist to help guide you in next steps. So with concern for urethral injury, or let's say they, they fell and they straddled on their bike and they've got a, a bunch of bruising over the perineal area, but there've been no blood in their urine, either grossly or on dip, and, and they're peeing fine. Is that somebody that needs to see you or have some minimum period of observation, or is that a return of those symptoms develop? I think that, that if you have proven that they're peeing fine, there's absolutely no blood in the urine. I think in that instance, the likelihood of having a urethral injury is so low that okay. that wouldn't prompt any next steps. But of course, if going forward, there's changes in the stream, that would be a reason to link in with a urologist. And then what's the current test of choice for evaluating for urethral injury? So rug, I think, is still the gold standard okay. to evaluate to throw this out there just for those of us that aren't pediatric urologists, RUG stands for retrograde urethrogram. 
that of course it's it's hard in many ways to especially if you're have a lower suspicion for an injury to bite the bullet to do it because it is an invasive test but that's if you're really trying to sort that out I, I think that that would be a reason to reach out to your pediatric urologist to say do you think this is necessary if you know if you're considering it so let's let's keep running down the list of things that scare me and I want to talk to you about. And I think the next one on that list is priapism. So priapism is defined as an erection lasting more than four hours that's, that's not stimulated. And so in the pediatric population, far and away, you're seeing this most commonly with sickle cell. I heard we were talking about this before. That's not something you're seeing as commonly. Uh, certainly, you, this is going to generate a call to urology basically right away. Yeah, we, um, we don't have a significant of... sickle population in, in Colorado, at least nearly as much as we did when I was in D.C. working with you. Yeah, and, you know, I think that in the pediatric population, this is not going to be a situation where you would ever be irrigating, injecting, managing, because in reality, this is a, a sequelae of whatever the underlying cause is, again, most commonly sickle cell. So you sort of need tandem management of the priapism as well of whatever the underlying etiology is. And so often you're going to need a multidisciplinary team to help you out with that. Some people used to say, make sure that, you know, they're oxygenated, hydrated, kind of all these things, pain managed before you call urology. I would say that you should do these things in tandem because much like torsion, this is a vascular related ischemic situation if it is in fact ischemic priapism. Um, and so I think these things should be done in tandem to prevent any fibrosis and injury to the erectile bodies of the penis. Let's say you have a patient and we are working somewhere rurally where they aren't going to physically be able to get to a urologist for quite some time. Uh, we'll make it a, you know, the rough situation where they're out there and the weather's bad and they can't transport. Are, are there things that, uh, that can be done in the ER if the urologist is not there to try to, to help reduce this? So certainly, again, treating whatever the baseline etiology is. So a lot of times that's IV hydration, oxygenation, pain management. Depending on the age, I think certainly if you're dealing with more of a teenage patient, in some cases, depending on your comfort level and ability, it may be appropriate to irrigate or inject with phenylephrine. This is what we would typically do, and you're typically using a dose of 100 to 200 micrograms uh, per milliliter. Um, you can either dilute this up, and sometimes some of the, I think the sticks in your crash cart already have this diluted, so that can be helpful. It's important that you have the patient on cardiac monitoring I would recommend a penile block. In some cases, you know, some patients may need sedation, although most of the older kids tend to do okay with the block. And so, you know, you can inject to look for effect. But I, I would say that on average, if you're at this point in a pediatric patient, you're just going to take, you're going to figure out a way to get them where they need right. to go versus you actually having to do that. Where are you injecting the phenylephrine? So uh, typically we inject laterally towards the base. Anything else on priapism? I guess the only thing to keep in mind is there is high flow or non-ischemic and ischemic or low flow priapism. The most classic one, the ischemic one is what, you know, I'm talking about with sickle cell and, you know, this is typically painful. 
Uh, high flow is not. And the way to sort this out is basically sending a blood gas from the corpora. Of course, be careful to label it as such <laughs> because <laughs> you might really scare someone if it gets sent as a blood gas and it's an ischemic priapism for a patient. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and for higher flow, are we mostly looking at medication related or are there non-medication related high flow priapism? High flow priapism is typically related to some sort of injury that has led to an AV fistula, essentially. Gotcha. Um, so, and it, it can be stuttering. It's typically not as rigid, certainly not painful or erect as a low flow or ischemic. Um, all right, moving on. How about paraphimosis? So, um, paraphimosis is essentially where there's a phimotic ring of the uncircumcised penis that rolls back behind the head of the penis, entrapping it, and then causing distal edema that sort of becomes a cycle where ultimately you're restricting blood flow to the glans penis or the distal penile shaft, wherever that ring is sort of uh, enlarged itself. Um, this also is emergent. I would say that my best advice for this is really don't be afraid to hold significant pressure for a while before trying to reduce it because it's going to increase the likelihood that you are successful. Because really what you need to do is squeeze that edema out um, before you're going to be able to kind of restore things to their usual their usual, I guess, their orthotopic position, let's say, of the foreskin. You know, you're in a really tough situation. There's always the dorsal slit, um, which is where you're basically incising that phimotic band, which will then, of course, release the tension and allow you to restore the foreskin to the orthotopic position. So now, again, I, I try to come at some of these from a, let's talk worst case scenario, post-zombie apocalypse. There's no pediatric urologists left in the entire world. And I'm the one that's doing this. So for the dorsal slit, are we looking similar to the cuts that you would make in a foreskin? Like for those of us pediatricians who are trained in doing like a plastibella or a gomco circumcision, as, is it similar to that or, or what's the process? So it's similar in that it will be dorsal, and but because of what things are going to look like, it, it won't look like it is when you're doing a circumcision, if that makes sense. Because the skin is already going to be back behind the head of the penis sort of right. bunched up. So you're just going to have to incise that that band, um, you know, the ring that's making things tight behind the head of the penis. and. Okay then you should be able to restore the foreskin. Um, so it, it, is a, it is similar. It's basically doing the same thing, except for the skin's already pulled back and you're just incising that right. band. Let's get into then all of the things that I might be seeing in the emergency room that have previously seen you for some sort of surgical need. So globally, patients who have had hypospadias repair or some sort of augmented bladder surgery. Can you help break down what sorts of procedures those patients are having and why, and then what kind of stuff they're seeing me in the emergency room for? I would say for most of our outpatient surgeries, bleeding and infection are the most common things, and this would be things like uh, orchiopexy for undescended testis, circumcision, these kind of bread and butter surgeries. Again, the top complications are bleeding and infection, and typically you guys know how to manage all that stuff and know when it's appropriate to call. In terms of hypospadias, a lot of times we will discharge patients home with an indwelling catheter into place. Before you do anything with a dressing or a catheter, absolutely, you know, get in touch with a pediatric urologist. Um, 
a lot of times the things that we deal with can also still be bleeding, which a lot of times we'll manage with a reinforcing dressing. Um, sometimes catheters can get plugged, um, so the catheter is not draining and the child is leaking around, so that may require irrigation. But I think before taking any initial steps, it's helpful to touch base with the surgeon and see what exactly they feel comfortable with you doing versus them doing, or is it something that they need to come in for? Neuropathic bladder, there are many causes. Probably the most common thing that people would be familiar with would, would be patients with spina bifida. And obviously they're complex. Often there's a lot of other issues that you're worrying about, whether that's neurologic, neurosurgical, orthopedic, whatever the situation may be. But in communicating with a pediatric urologist about one of their spina bifida patients, I think it's it's helpful if you can sort of figure out the basic lay of the land, I think that will help you communicate. What I what I mean by that is how are they sort of managing their their bowel and bladder? Um, are they are they on a catheterization program? Who how do they catheterize? Do they catheterize through their native urethra, or are they using a metrofenoff or a Monty? Um, and to clarify that, those are both different types of catheterizable channels that have been surgically created. Uh, metrofenoff is essentially a catheterized channel that's made of appendix. Most often, you'll see the stoma for that, and this is much smaller than a bowel stoma, but you may see this in the right lower quadrant or in the umbilicus, just like a little pink rosebud. Then the Monty is essentially also a surgically created catheterizable channel that's made of ileum. So it's, you know, these are important things to know just what exactly is their regimen. Um, you may also hear a MACE, which is a Malone integrated incontinence enema, which again, the stoma can either be in the umbilicus or in the right side of the abdomen. And this is a way to basically deal with neuropathic bowel and provide an integrated enema by inserting a catheter typically and then flushing with various solutions. So these are all helpful things to know. I think often a challenge is determining whether or not there actually is a urinary tract infection. And so one thing I'm always talking about with my patients is that foul-smelling urine does not a UTI make. You need other symptoms, particularly if you are on intermittent catheterization and most likely colonized. So those may be things like fever, abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, flank pain, a sudden increase in accident when the child had been previously dry or significant pain with catheterization. I think it's important to keep in mind that you may not see the classic UTI symptoms in a child with neuropathic bowel or bladder. Their sensation is going to be different due to their neurologic condition. So that's something to keep in mind. Um, and another thing to keep in mind is to ask if the bladder is augmented. So have have has a patch of intestine basically been placed on the bladder to provide better bladder capacity, lower bladder pressures as a management of their neuropathic bladder, because this would, I should, I guess, prompt you to think, could there be a rupture in the augment? And often this is the teenage child that is not catheterizing as frequently as they should, and things have become overdistended. And with time, some necrosis has developed and a leak has subsequently occurred. So I think what I'm hearing too is that for patients with those augments or who have had some sort of surgery and do a cath regimen, their urines are always going to have some abnormality on them. Should we always be speaking with, with whoever their primary urologist is before we start any sort of antibiotics? I would say the basic answer is yes. I mean, certainly if you're completely convinced that based on symptomatology that this is a UTI, I think it's fine to start treatment and call. But in general, I 
I personally prefer that the team is contacted just so we can kind of see, you know, is there anything else that we need to do? And also just to manage follow-up, because certainly if you have a child with a neuropathic bladder that's suddenly suffering from recurrent urinary tract infections, well, that's a red flag to me that something is not going right in terms of management of the urinary tract. You know, I need to adjust my game plan going forward. And that is unfortunately the end of our time for today. I want to thank Dr. Tanya Davis for recording this with me and and be willing to chat. I've been your host, Dr. Jason Woods. Please keep the conversation going by finding me on Twitter at jwoodsmd, via email at littlepatientsbigmedicine at gmail.com, or at the Little Big Med website, www.littlebigmed.com. Don't forget to head on over to your favorite podcasting app and leave us a five-star review. It really does help other people find the podcast. This podcast is recorded in the studios of the Digital Scholarship Accelerator at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. 